And in that, the responses to that question, I can tell like who says fine, excited, curious, those all kind of go into one category, but then there's other category of students who say overwhelmed, anxious. I had one student in my current class say sick. And he felt sick about the class. And so those are the students who get my video response, you know, who get my warm high touch instantly. Like I read your response. You said you're feeling this way. I want you to know that I am here to support you. The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning. Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones, sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thank you for joining us. And now, the Digital to Learn podcast. Welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast. I'm Tiffany Snyder, and I'm here with a guest, Michelle Pekansky-Brock. Dr. Michelle Pekansky-Brock is a practitioner scholar who is committed to increasing the social mobility of future generations through equitable online education. Michelle's work has helped online instructors across the nation and beyond understand how to craft relevant, humanized online learning experiences that support the diverse needs of college students. Her current work focuses on preparing faculty to promote belonging online, particularly for students from minoritized groups by utilizing culturally responsive teaching and psychologically inclusive course design. With a group of dedicated educators, she is leading a statewide project in California to close equity gaps by humanizing online undergraduate STEM courses. You can learn more about Michelle at brokansky.com and connect with her on Twitter at brokansky. Hi, Michelle. Hey there, Tiffany. Michelle's name was brought to my attention from my colleagues in learning experience design at Indiana Wesleyan University, who heard Michelle speak on the liquid syllabus and said, you've got to get her on the podcast. We have so many questions for her. So this was fun. We asked our colleagues to provide some questions that we could feed to Michelle. And that's how this one came about. So I'm pretty excited to be able to follow up on that request and get to know Michelle a little bit better. In typical digital to learn fashion, we're going to start with some get to know you questions. And I might have done my homework a little bit on your social (laughs) media, Michelle, to kick these off, but cats or dogs? Okay, this might be a weird answer, but I'm going to say neither. My answer is miniature dachshunds, because if you know miniature dachshunds, they're really not like most dogs and they're not a cat either. And I'm very loyal to my mini doxies. Oh, and if somebody wanted to see some pictures of your mini doxies, where might they find some? <laughs> on my phone, actually. I don't share a lot <laughs> well, of my that's dogs just online, but, but... <laughs> oh. I could change that. I post them on Twitter from time to time and yeah, yeah they're pretty cute. I think that's where I got my inside scoop was Twitter, but absolutely <laughs> adorable. All right. Vanilla or chocolate? I have a motto in life and it's, if it's not chocolate, it's not worth it. And that's how I make all my decisions about desserts. (laughs) My four-year-old daughter last night just confessed that she doesn't like chocolate. And I thought, well, you're going to have to find a new family (laughs) because I don't know you anymore. I'm questioning our relationship. Where did you come from? Right. Uh (laughs) Okay. Hiking, biking, or boating? I guess I'd have to say hiking. Mm -hmm. But honestly, I'd choose Pilates over all of them. <laughs> oh, I love that. 
I did not pick up on that from your Twitter feed. So it's fun to uncover something new. <laughs> and a bonus question, starting to get us into the field of education here. In-person, remote, or hybrid? Well, I got to speak from my own experiences, mm -hmm. and it makes me think about work. And I have been a remote employee for more than 10 years long before COVID and it works for me and I absolutely love it. So I work from multiple institutions from the same chair that I'm in right now. I and that. I find it fascinating and we could do a whole different podcast on that topic, but that's my answer. For me, it's remote. You're saying the same chair for 10 years. That <laughs> I know I need a new chair. <laughs> exactly. I don't know where my mind is going, but you continue to talk and I'm thinking somebody needs to get her a new chair. <laughs> it's time. <laughs> it's it, like when it you've worked time. at an organization for 10 years and they gift you a pen, you know, this yes. is your 10 year anniversary. You need a new chair. <laughs> right. Maybe digital to learn can help with that. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for playing along with us there for a little bit. Again, my colleagues gave me your name and it was just so fun to dig into your CV a bit and see some of the projects that you've been working on. One of the terms that continued to show up was inclusiveness. And so the first question we have is related to instruction. And that's what does it mean to you to be an inclusive instructor? So for me, I started in higher education back in 1999. I started as a in the classroom, actually teaching art history at a community college um, part-time, and then I was hired full-time. And as I look back at my experiences with teaching, I think for me to kind of explain what inclusion means to me, it's helpful to go back to like the early days. And I was so focused on my content and I was so really aware that like teaching is it is such a hard job and I remember someone coming up to me this is a terrible story but I'm centering it because I think <laughs> it's so important one of my colleagues came up to me in my first year teaching full-time and I was very overwhelmed I had two little ones at home and I was teaching five classes three new preps you know committee work and she said can I give you some advice and I said sure and love some advice. And she said, you have to teach to the top of the class. And at the time, again, a long time ago, I heard that. And I remember thinking it was kind of comforting to hear that. But looking back at it now, I see how divisive and racist that approach is. And I realize now how complicit I was in sustaining all the concerning equity gaps that we see when we break down our data by race, ethnicity, gender, and certain disciplines. Yeah. And so I think that that's not an inclusive teacher. Yeah. So what it means to be inclusive is, first of all, to be aware of my own identity, that self-awareness, which is really important, and to have cultural humility to know that, you know, the culture that I'm steeped in brings inequities for others. So particularly, you know, my racial identity as a white person and cisgender, able-bodied, all of those aspects of my own social identity and 
how I can't see blind spots that those privileges create for me unless I'm really intentional about it. So I think that's the first thing I want to say about what it means to be an inclusive teacher. It means doing the hard self-work and being aware of the data that shows who is privileged in higher education and then knowing who your students are and understanding their realities that they bring into your class and being in it with them and supporting them as a learning partner as opposed to positioning yourself as a gatekeeper. And I think we can, we'll talk more about what I mean by that. But the only other thing I would add to that, Tiffany, is along the lines, I remember hearing that diversity is who's at the table. Inclusion is how those at the table feel. Do they feel included? And then equity is, does everyone at the table have what they need to achieve the same outcomes? So again, inclusion, it's like those who are in your class, do they all feel included in what's happening there? And that's what inclusive teaching is to me. That's it. All such powerful imagery and the memory that you have of your experience is such a great example of really you were well-intentioned, excited about your content, like you said, just very focused on that content and launching that career as an instructor. But it's neat to hear how you've developed and allowed those experiences to, to change you, to move you. And now you're on a podcast talking about pretty cool inclusive instruction. So you presented on identity-rich teaching at the 2022 Sidelight Conference. What do you mean by identity rich and why does it matter particularly online? Well, first of all, it means not creating an environment that is kind of veiled in anonymity. And I think this very much applies to the classroom too. But when we're online, and I've learned online, I completed my EDD online. And there are oftentimes like I didn't know much more about my professor than what that person's name was. And I didn't know much more about my peers in the class other than what their names were or like, you know, maybe an introduction forum, which when you do enough introduction discussion forums, it's kind of like, oh, let me copy and paste that and plug it right in. And it becomes very mundane and not meaningful. So when it comes to teaching online, I think far more than teaching in the classroom, it's really easy to relate, just relate to one another as names on a screen. And that's problematic going both ways because for the students coming into a class who who feel comfortable, who feel like they belong, who feel welcomed, they're in a privileged spot than students who bring, you know, everyone who comes into a college, they bring their past experiences with them. And for students who bring minoritized identities into the classroom, you know, they're more likely to have been shot down in the past, to have received the cues in their life through various mechanisms from educators, from the media, colleges in a place for them. And so you have to think about students entering a college classroom from different places. And many of them enter from a place of distrust, but from the teaching side, we really expect our students to trust us. Trust is just assumed. And you can think about, you know, like just having the expectation for students to reach out and ask for help. That hinges upon a degree of trust. 
because trust is taking something that is important to you and exposing it or making it vulnerable to another person. And that is not something that students are going to do who have already had that sense of trust be violated. So when it comes to identity-rich teaching, we know that sharing our vulnerabilities, making ourselves real to our students is the best way to start a class off and start to build that trust before we have our students actually step in and have to share. And so that's one of the component of identity rich teaches it's not just being yourself but it's about being really intentional about designing a student experience where you bring your human presence your real human presence and you're being transparent about what you're doing in your classes and why you do it and how it relates back to you as a teacher from the very first click and I think that's really important is to think about when do students click for the first time, because from that very first click, that's when their perceptions about you as a teacher and what your class is going to be like and whether or not this is an environment that they're going to be able to dig into and succeed in and feel supported, that those perceptions get formed within seconds, within seconds. I think I've shared this before on the podcast, but we recently at IWU launched some data dashboards and I asked the assessment director, what's the most surprising takeaway as these dashboards have been released now and you've been digging in, what have you found related to instruction and learning? And he said that there was significant correlation between how early an instructor posts in a course and student success. And so I thought, okay, you know, week one, day one, that's what he's talking about. But no, it was week zero, the week before. So if an instructor had already posted a welcome video or some kind of welcome communication the week before a course started, an online course, then it was correlated with student success at the end of the course. That's really interesting data. And I'll follow that up with two things. Yeah, one of the things in the work that I'm doing now is we're thinking about that week zero to week one as what we call a high opportunity zone, because oh, wow. it is when that psychological threat plays such a role for some students. And I think the other thing I would say is that I would bet that if you dug deeper into that data, what you would see is that the success is going up for a certain group of students, probably mm. the students who feel the most minoritized. And then secondly, it's not just a post, but it's what you post. Mm -hmm. Because making a post alone early, depending on what that post is, right? If you're posting something that sends the cue instantly, like, this is going to be really hard. And if you don't pass these couple of huge exams, there's no way you're going to pass this class, right? And so by sending mm. those kinds of cues before the class even starts, you're actually going to create more issues and exacerbate the threat that is there. So I think that that's just two things I would keep in mind too. Yeah. I will. I will dig deeper. <laughs> what I failed to mention is that assessment director has been promoted to a new role. And so we're just kind of sitting on this data now and somebody needs to ask those follow-up questions. So what I hear you doing is assigning that to me and I'll take it. <laughs> no, I will though. Follow-up question to that is, 
And maybe you've already answered this and that's okay, but what does it look like to be an identity-rich online instructor? Yeah, so for me, I have to have my presence cultivated online. And that means mastering how to use video. Mm -hmm. And I didn't start with using video. I mean, back in the day, I'm talking like before YouTube, I would just do voice. And when I just started using voice with my students instantly, I saw different responses from them. Like I remember getting a message from a student, an online student saying, sounds like you have a cold. I hope you're feeling better. You know, and <laughs> so just the way that hearing our voice conveys things, you know, it's like metadata about what's going on in my life. And it, I think that the other part of it is understanding the benefits of bringing the verbal and nonverbal cues into the classroom and recognizing the vulnerability that takes on my part, right? So I use a lot of different types of multimedia in my classes. Classes that I teach, I use VoiceThread, which is an asynchronous voice or video tool. And so recording a video response to a student, you know, after the workday is over, because I, I have a full-time job and I teach on top of that and, you know, letting them see that I look rather haggard and tired, but, you know, leaving <laughs> yeah. this video comment is important to me. Or <laughs> if I'm going to record, if I'm going to have a policy, like I have a pretty non-traditional grading approach in my class and I want students to know why I have policies and I like to record little videos that I record on my phone out in my backyard. You might see my dogs running around in the backyard, but just getting out of the academic environment, I think is part of identity rich teaching too. I think too often when we encourage faculty to teach with video, there's still this like, okay, well, where's my recording studio? Where's my one hour lecture? And really kind of breaking it down and thinking about video just as a little tool that doesn't take a lot of effort or production. And these, these smartphones are darn good at it. <laughs> right. You know, how do we master recording with video and bringing it into the class? But the other thing I would say, Tiffany, is I'm talking a lot about my identity. And I think that when you ask, what does it look like in an online class? The other side of that is designing and teaching a class that centers the identities of your students. So one of the things that we practice in our approaches to inclusive online teaching, which we refer to as humanizing in the work that I'm doing, is starting your class off in week one with a getting to know you survey and asking students to complete it and giving them some points. So it kind of builds that self-efficacy in it by, by completing a simple assignment. But in that survey, I, it first of all it takes a lot of time and I have a lot of faculty who say, well, I can't do that. And my advice is try it with one class, try it with one class and just see how it goes because you're going to see a difference. But asking students some really simple questions, you know, I mean, in addition to, do you have any tips for how to pronounce your name? What are your pronouns? But things like in one word, describe how you're feeling about this class. And in that, the responses to that question, I can tell like who says fine, excited, curious, those all kind of go into one category, but then there's this other category of students who say overwhelmed, anxious. I had one student in my current class say sick, like he felt sick about the class. 
And so those are the students who get my video response, you know, who get my warm high touch instantly. Like I read your response. You said you're feeling this way. I want you to know that I am here to support you, right? Really that really warm high touch response. And then you get the replies to that, like, thank you. I really appreciate that. Really helping to ensure that students feel seen and heard. And then the question after that, that I love to ask is, if there is one thing that may interfere with your success in this course, what do you think it might be? That's where I really get to know of students. And again, I find out students who say, I'm pregnant and I'm going to have my baby halfway through this class. I'm slated to have surgery in week whatever. You know, so what I do is I read these really quickly is I teach with Canvas and I enable the notes column in the Canvas grades area. And I take notes about students, like really quick one, two word notes so that I can refer back to them during the course. And if I see a student who starts to maybe not be logging in, who had been, you know, consistently engaged, I can check those notes, reach out to them with a real personalized high touch message. And it resonates differently, right? Sends a different cue to a student when they understand that like, wow, I'm really aware of what's going on in their life. And I'm really looking at, you know, this assignment within the context of the rest of the class. And my nudges are not to say, you aren't doing what you need to be doing. My nudges say, I'm here to support you and I want you to succeed and achieve your goals. So what's going on and, and how can we work together to get you back on track? That was a long answer to your short question, but. <laughs> well, I, I love it all for many reasons. One of which is the data dashboards that I was talking about. Sometimes they're neat, but it can be tempting to allow that to be the summary of the student. Like, oh, look, I have all this access on them now. I have demographic information. I have their risk status, their high risk to withdraw from this course or um, I've got their their past success in other courses on here. And so to let that be the majority of the getting to know you in reality, even if faculty are responding like, I don't have time for that, what you're suggesting is actually very simple and very effective. You would not capture that in the big data to be able to say, share an emoji or share one word to tell me how you're feeling. And also what can I anticipate as being a potential roadblock to your success in this course? That data coming into the course wouldn't tell you if somebody was expecting a baby or those different things that are shared. So I think it's great because you're showing a simple and practical way that faculty can lean into that, to getting to know their students. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. It does. It humanizes that data. And we know that isolation exacerbates psychological threat. And when that kind of perpetuates the cycle of not believing in oneself, it creates a barrier between what a person is capable of doing. And that sense of isolation is where you start when you're learning online, right? And so, yeah, we've got to be really mindful of that. But I think that you made a really good point there about, about the data and thinking about the messiness that is behind that data. And it's that messiness that makes us people. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for joining us on Digital to Learn. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are three things we ask you to do. One, come back and join us again. Two, tell your friends about us. And three, give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform. 
Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Embrace the future. Always keep learning.